Jew, where a secular, sinful Israeli speaks to her holy religious friend. I'm Yael with Chayalea. We are the Martha Stewart and Snoop Dogg of Judaism. Um, Chayalea, I'm the Snoop Dogg, You're Snoop Dogg because you're from Long Beach. That's right. And you smoke exactly. weed all day. Oh my God. Yeah. And you Did have you guys hear, uh, You guys heard, didn't Snoop Dogg quit weed somewhat yes, dramatically? Exactly. He did. He's and clean. He, he posted like, uh, he said like, um, Please don't reach out to me in this time. Like, like, like someone in his family <laughs> had died. My privacy. Yeah, he said, "Respect my privacy." I think. <laughs> well, he is a great, great grandfather or something, isn't he? <laughs> is he actually? I, Jesus <laughs> I still love him. But we have—if if you haven't noticed—we have a boy here with us, which is well, always. Exciting. How do you know that? That's how he identifies. You didn't ask him. I don't know, Coleman. I, I'm sorry to assume. <laughs> you, no, you yeah, I, I, I'm a they now. Oh, yeah. I, figured, I figured my book is coming out. There's a lot of attention. Might as yeah. well. Your profile in the New York the Times. I mean, right. I think that's a rule, really. Yeah. But oh we have God. Coleman Hughes. We're very excited, Coleman, that you're doing our, our little baby podcast because we know you're you're in high demand uh, recently. But if you don't know Coleman, he's a you know musician, a rapper, a podcaster, an author. Uh, recently wrote The End of Race Politics, Arguments for a Colorblind America, which we will talk about. But you also know him from like CNN, Bill Maher, Free Press. Uh, New York Times just did a really nice feature about you where they called you a uh, young black conservative. Uh, I don't know if you agree with all three of those words, Um, (laughs) but we'll talk about that later. But thank you for coming on Ask a Jew. Thank you for having me back. You are you are Jewish, right? I just want to confirm because we have. <laughs> According to Norman Finkelstein, I'm a black Shabbos goy. <laughs> oh my god, that that's is actually amazing. not a joke. He called me that in a, in an angry and unhinged email. Really? <laughs> yeah. Oh my god! You should have been like, "That's a compliment, actually." Thank you so much for saying that. <laughs> What's I had to look it up. I, <laughs> is a black Shabbos goy like? Does is it? Different function from a regular Shabbos goy? You think, you know, these are just... questions for Finkelstein's next book. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm sure he will have like a detailed exegesis on what makes a black Shabbos goy exactly. different than. Yeah. Do you know what I call him? I don't call him Finkelstein anymore. I call him Fuckelstein because that's, that's what he is. Much better. Kyla, your parents are listening to this podcast. I don't care. I hate that guy so much. Yeah. Ugh, yeah. There, there's a him. certain, we, we always, we, we do reserve a special place in our heart for, you know how they say like, if you have kids, you think you can't love anymore, but then you, the new kid, you can love them. You right, know, you, <laughs> your place in your heart doubles. That's how I feel every time I see like one of those super anti-Zionist Jews. I like know. I thought I couldn't hate anymore, <laughs> but I, I always find room. It expands. <laughs> yeah. It's true. That is so true. You know who was a black Shabbos guy, by the way? Um, uh, what's his? Oh my God. Why can't I think of his name? Snoop he was Dog? the Secretary of Defense. Under George Bush, Colin Powell. Colin Powell. Yeah. Really? So yeah, you're you're in good company. Like metaphorically, or no? Like no, like actual... he actually did that. Yeah. I really? mean, all it is is helping a Jewish family for their like with their Shabbat needs. Like, if you're my neighbor and mm-hmm. you know it's super hot, and I would love my air conditioning to be turned on, but right. I won't do it myself because it's Shabbat. So you ask your neighbor or friend. You so, just call a call a black man in to do your work. No, you don't call anyone in. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> We've been doing free labor in this country for yeah. 400 years. How dare you? <laughs> oh my God. I'm going to get to that in a heard, second. I recently heard that that's all, that was all actually funded and started by the Jews too. Yeah, it actually was. It, slavery was done by the Jews. The Jews actually, actually did the here Holocaust. To apologize. Yeah. yeah. According to everyone's hero, Louis Farrakhan, the Jews were behind not only slavery, but the Holocaust. 
We're we're very crafty, and we have a lot of time. You He's do have a, a lot of time, guy. apparently. Yeah. Yeah. Louis Farrakhan's a great guy. I yeah. mean, what a lovely person. <laughs> we should have him on the show. Yeah, we should yeah. get him on. He's such an oh god. Anyway, um, Coleman. So you, how did you write a book? I mean, it's I can't even write a paragraph. I can't like, even read a how, book. Yeah. How did you do it? Uh, lots of pain and lots of missed deadlines. Really? really? Yeah. Did you hate it at some point? At some point, were you like? I hate this book. At most points, <laughs> okay. I hated it. Yeah. I mean, it's not like <clears throat> more seriously, I really enjoy writing op eds and essays. I got my start writing like 3,000 word think pieces for Quillette. Mm-hmm. And that was the perfect amount of time to really get deep into a subject. And I thoroughly enjoy writing pieces of that length. So when I decided to write a book, I figured, okay, if I'm going to write a 60,000 word, book that's like 23,000 word essays which yeah, I I no popped those out at, you know in 2 weeks or something. Mm-hmm. Turns out the math doesn't work that way and <laughs> writing something 20 times longer is not 20 times harder it's like 200 times harder. Oh my uh. god. So uh, it was a re- yeah it was a good but painful learning experience. I think my next book will be easier to write as a result. I'm, I've, I've heard it's sort of like a childbirth in that yeah. like when it's happening, you're like, never again. But uh, not to use that on this podcast, that phrase. But when it's <laughs> happening, you're like, I'm never going to do this again. And then the moment you see the baby, you immediately want to have another. Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, I've had four kids and let me assure you, it took a few minutes to feel like I would do that again. (laughs) It was, it was a process to get back in the saddle in any case with that. But did you have like, were you disciplined about writing? Like, did you sit down every day for a certain amount of hours? Eventually, I had to get much more disciplined about it because or else it wasn't going to happen. Yeah. Um, Did you wake up every morning with that pit in your stomach? Like, uh, I, oh. I was I already woke up every morning with a okay. pit in my stomach. So. <laughs> so you are Jewish, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Wait, I have one more question about the process. Like, I I don't know if you feel this way, but like, I'm very intimidated by other people reading or listening to me. I have like huge imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. Do you have that at all? Like, were you worried about? Is there like a particular person in mind? Like, you were like, oh my god, I don't know about them reading my book. I'm nervous. Or did you feel that at all? Yes, I feel that. I feel all of those thoughts. Yeah. I think in some way imposter syndrome never goes away. I guess. Um, though <laughs> one gets used to it. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. It's no, also it's very a mark of successful people sometimes because you're always kind of chasing not chasing, but you're always you know, you always want to produce. You always mm-hmm. wanna wanna climb a step in the in a ladder, personal ladder. That's true. For sure. I the first time I heard about you was when you were on Sam Harris's podcast. I don't know how mm-hmm. that was many years ago, but mm-hmm. how did he? How did you get on his radar? Like why? Why were you on his podcast? I think I was from... asking because we want to get on his radar. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what should from... we say? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was from those three thousand word think pieces I wrote in oh. Quillette. I wrote three or four of those that were shared widely uh, in kind of in the circles that Sam Harris runs in, and so. Mm-hmm. He just uh, read me long enough to to become interested and want to do a podcast with me. Wow, that's interesting. I mean, you were super young then. How old were you? You're still. That was probably yeah. four to five years ago. Oh, really? So that was probably I was probably twenty three. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Twenty three. Yeah, El was still like you know wearing <laughs> diapers probably at twenty three. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I thought you said when Coleman was twenty three, I was already old. 
No, no. <laughs> the truth is, I shouldn't say that. You were in the army, probably. I mean, or finished the army by then, yeah. So maybe, yeah, I, yeah. Shouldn't, I shouldn't but laugh I at still, you. There's a whole thing. It's funny that you mentioned diapers because there's a whole thing on Twitter that uh, people say that IDF soldiers wear diapers, mm-hmm. which what? I've never heard of. What? What but, is that about? Uh, I don't know. It's some weird like fetish. Um, I remember I saw, I, I don't know who, what paranoid pro-Palestinian activist was saying this on Twitter, but they were saying, uh, I think, oh, I think it was at the Columbia protest, maybe. People were saying, yeah, like the, the NYPD and the IDF have like links, like the IDF. Oh, yeah trains the NYPD to oppress us. And I was like, that actually might be true because Yael is probably the link. <laughs> when they yell yeah. uh, NYPD, IDF, KKK, you're all the same. Yeah, yeah. I'm always like, I'm two of the three of those things. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, oh there is a God. there is a thing. There is a thing called like that, you know, there is joint training. It's like probably a week where some cops from North Carolina come to Israel to learn about like hostage negotiation uh but right. the the palestinian activists have turned it into some like and you do like target practice on pictures of abbas exactly yeah. exactly. exactly well or you know black people the depending black people on of course coming yeah. exactly yeah. um okay i want to i'm gonna sorry i'm going serious right now because serious. there was a paragraph in the book that i just i want to read it because and i never do this on the podcast but you really triggered something in me and i want to talk about it with you mm-hmm. okay It's this paragraph. Give me a minute. It says, (laughs) My childhood attitude toward my ancestry was mixed. On the one hand, the mere fact that the name of a human being could be listed alongside inanimate objects and livestock led me Uh, filled me with sadness and confusion. At the same time, I felt pride that my ancestors had overcome a system as brutal and dehumanizing as slavery. It made the obstacles in my own life seem surmountable by comparison. Whenever I faced challenges, physical or mental, I remembered that my enslaved ancestors had overcome much worse. This paragraph, (laughs) it literally is how I feel and think about my grandparents who were Mm -hmm. Holocaust survivors. Like I... It just sits in my head all the time. Mm. And then you go on in the book to write about like inherited trauma and how that's like not a thing and, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever, which I don't know the science behind it and I don't really care. But I want to unpack this a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I have a specific question. So Mm. I've never talked about this before and it's really hard to like say. Holocaust? (laughs) No, No, this specific thing I'm going to say. One of the things that's been a challenge for me growing up with the stories of my grandparents and studying the Holocaust is when I would see pictures of the Jews in the camps or in line to the gas chambers or, you know, on the streets where the Nazis were like mocking them and cutting the beards off of the rabbis, I felt a deep pain, but I also sometimes feel a deep shame and I feel so bad that I feel that shame because I'm like embarrassed. I don't know. I don't know what it is, but I feel a, sort, a sense of embarrassment mm. about what my grandparents and f- my whole family went through. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know. I feel I'm like ashamed to even admit that really. But because mm. they were victims, right? But I feel like a weakness and a shame. And how did we let this happen to us? And you know, mm. I, on and on, whatever. And when I read that, I was like, I wonder if you've ever had those mm. same thoughts or if that has ever crossed your mind about your yeah, ancestors. It's so interesting you say that. I mean, I, I, I was just listening to Eli Lake's fantastic 
podcast on Menachem Begin. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. uh, and especially his early years in the Jewish underground and so forth. And the the attitude that many Zionist Jews had um, before Israel was founded and in the early years that they did not want to be like like the Jews of Europe and they 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 would be strong and they would fight and they would get their hands dirty if needed and they would never you know walk like sheep to the slaughter that mm-hmm, was the kind yeah. of rhetoric and you can hear in that word almost a kind of judgment and embarrassment of of european european jewry for what 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 would be negatively derided as not resisting enough or something right. and and That's- this is the same thing i think um in some way psychologically has played out in the black community with some criticizing uh, or, or feeling shame at the sense that slaves in the antebellum South didn't do enough to resist their chains. And then uh, uh, another group of historians really emphasizing all the things that slaves did do to resist, right. whether outright rebellions of the Nat Turner style or kind of daily small acts of rebellion and so forth. So this psychology you talk about, it's not, I don't think it's abnormal at all to feel that uh, when looking at the the oppression of your ancestors. That said, I can't say it's anything that I have felt hmm. uh, personally. Really, I, I, I feel, I mean, I, I think to it's very difficult to imagine being in a scenario where an entire state has been organized for your oppression, right? To right. like, we, we all would like to think that we would be the heroic yeah. person to resist, but this is, I think, enormously hubristic of people mm. and self-serving. It's like, I, I'm a strong believer of not, uh, not assuming that you know how you would react you would act in emergency situations uh, if you haven't been tested. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I think about that a lot with things going on in Israel. And, you know, every time I'm home, like, you know, you wonder what what would you do and, mm. you know, if something happened right now. And mm. you hear all these stories of heroism of people. And also I think the older you get, the more you're like, like, hell no, I'm not. <laughs> you know, it's right. it's like scarier to risk your life. Uh, for others, but that's mm-hmm. I think that makes w- once you realize that that you wouldn't necessarily be that hero, it makes you respect those who who make that choice more. Mm-hmm. But you know, we were raised. I mean, I don't know if you guys felt this, but we were definitely raised in my community to like revere people who took risks, like major oh, yeah. risks, and risked their lives and sacrificed their lives for, like in our case, the Jewish people. Right? I mean, mm-hmm. we were constantly told about people who died, what we call Al-Kiddush Hashem, like for the sake mm-hmm. of God, because they were Jews. And, you know, you can learn about like the rabbis in ancient times, or we can, or like someone like Hannah Senesh, who was, you know, a young woman from Eastern Europe who, you know, lived in Israel and she was like a poet. And then she like parachuted into, hung, I don't know, I think Hungary or Poland during the war and was tortured and killed because she wouldn't reveal the names of Mm -hmm. any of the other Jewish resistance. Mm -hmm. And like, these were the people that we revered. And so I feel strongly that like, 
if I will never be able to live up to that, so I'm just such a loser. Like, I don't know. I mean, it's like, I can't, how do you live up to that, you know? And, and then what Coleman, what you were writing in the book about like, we, our issues today are nothing compared to what they lived through. Like, what are we even complaining about? I mean, how are we complaining? Right. And and ultimately, I think this, you know, this, uh, for me, extends beyond just my own ancestors, right? Like when I watch a documentary on people who survived the gulags in Russia, I, it's just, (laughs) it's impossible to see that and then really feel unlucky about any crap I'm going through today, right? Just to understand Mm -hmm. the, the massive good luck you have to have had in, in order to be born in a country that's not at war, Mm-hmm. to be born with political rights, all, all of these things that people just take for granted and complain about with no sense of historical context about what it is, the kind of paradise it is to be born in the modern Western world. It's, mm-hmm. it's uh, incredible to me. Yeah, yeah. and you, you touch on that too. And, and I want to I wanna go, go to the book and, and talk a little bit about that. But, you know, social media and just smartphones and and kind of the state of the world today has really is really encouraging everybody to amplify the negative. And you know, I I, I call it like I say we're constantly in a state of like overstating uh, what's bad and some kind of alarmism. Mm-hmm. Um, so t- talk to us a little bit about that. I mean, you you talk your your book is called the end of race politics arguments for a colorblind America. And there are some, uh, um, you know, some institutions, some worlds that I think all, all three of us kind of circle uh, around where the word colorblind has become impolite. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. It's something you don't, you, you don't say anymore. Right. It's uh, there's been a very effective PR campaign against colorblindness going back to the 70s and 80s, when the founders of critical race theory, Kimberly Crenshaw, Derek Bell, and others, f- created this philosophy directly in opposition to colorblindness. Mm-hmm. And in their own words, they said that essentially the colorblind rhetoric and philosophy of the civil rights movement was not the right way to think about race. Here's a new way to think about race that is that departs from the civil rights vision of the of the mid sixties of Dr. King and so forth, which makes your race an incredibly important uh, component of who you are. It makes your 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 race central. Uh, it argues that all of society is tilted against uh, black people in favor of white people in ways that are invisible and must must constantly be kind of discovered and that was pretty marginal it was basically confined to the academy for many decades and frankly american race relations really just improved steadily from you know the the 90s through about 2012 2013 through obama's first term right at that time, 2012 and 13, you look back at Gallup and Pew polls, you find majority of black, white, and Hispanic Americans thought race relations were good. Mm-hmm. Uh, the majority of black Americans felt that discrimination was not the main reason for disparities in housing and so forth. In other words, there was a 
period of calm and and satisfaction with what America, uh, the progress America had made on race. And then it all reversed. Uh, it, it all started going downhill in 2013 when Black Lives Matter started. Now, my theory of, I think the only theory that makes sense for for what changed is that 2013 is around the time everyone, critical mass of people had camera-enabled smartphones and social Mm -hmm. media, which meant that the whole way we consumed information and content changed overnight. Whereas in 2010 or 2005, if a cop arrested uh, a black person and the situation went left for some reason and um, the, the citizen ended up getting killed or hurt or whatever, what would happen is... You know, a journalist would arrive at the scene, interview people. It might make the local six o'clock news. And uh, by the time it was in the morning paper, it would have gone through a vetting and context creating uh, process that allowed for people to understand both points of view about what, what happened. In 2013, all of a sudden, if a traffic stop goes the wrong way, Someone has pulled out their iPhone, taken an out of context clip that probably doesn't include the lead up or the beginning of the interaction, shares it on Facebook with no context or fact checking, where it gets millions of views and people have an opinion on it before anyone knows the facts of the situation. When you when you have that ability, you, you, it just it. it, it gives a huge advantage to content and information that taps into tribal identities, us versus them, historical grievances, and so forth. And so we we got this huge uptick in videos and content that appear to show racist incidents. And that led to this belief that racism was just skyrocketing and, and going through the roof. And, uh, and a backlash to that narrative on the right, which caused race relations to torpedo. And the sad part of it all is that None of it had any basis in reality. It was all about perceptions created by this new technology and, and uh, um, these new information pathways. So, um, the last thing I'll say about this: many people would want to argue, well, social media, iPhones, every citizen being now a de facto journalist. What this did is reveal all the racism that was always out there. Right. Now. The mm-hmm. reason we know this is not true is, is if it were true, you would expect people to have a more accurate perception uh, now in, than they did in the past about how much racism is out there. But that's been tested and come back negative. So for instance, uh, one researcher asked very liberal Americans who are the most online, how many uh, how many unarmed black Americans do you think get killed mm. by the cops every year? And the, the average answer was a thousand. The true number in that year was 12. So they're off by a factor of 100. (laughs) So this new way of consuming content and information, social media, smartphones, etc., it's not educating us, it's miseducating us. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't seem to be, it doesn't seem to be slowing down, I think, um, unfortunately. And we see it a lot with with what's happening in Israel and, you know, and seeing young people kind of come out uh, in support of the Houthis and and just like... (laughs) batch it crazy things yeah. like that and and one thing I've, I've heard you say before is you know a lot of people talk about like peak wokeness and we've reached 
peak wokeness and, you know, we're kind of beyond that slump. But at the end of the day, we're not going back to where we were in, in 2013, let's say. Right. We're, we're still, you know, the, the slowdown is not necessarily, you know, it's, it's better than an escalation. Right. But we still, there's still a lot of, I don't want to say work to do because I don't even know if we can turn back this this time. No, you're right. I don't know if we can either. I mean, uh, I think with the great technological transformations of history, the printing press in Europe, mm-hmm. even the television in the 1960s, how that changed perceptions, the Vietnam War, mm-hmm. civil rights movement. It's, I don't know of a case where the genie has been put fully back in the bottle. No. Um, so things are, you know, we're not going to go back to the the world as it was. Uh, but yeah, as you say, the fact that we we reached peak woke in 2020, 2021 is not so consoling because you could have argued in 1947, well, we reached peak violence in 1945. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so it doesn't mean we're in a good place. Yeah, I, I have to believe that young. I mean, I, I can be very pessimistic about the young people and the college students that I work with, but I do see a bit of a maybe just a tiny start to some of my students beginning to realize that not everything they think or have been told is actually the way the world is. And a lot of them are starting to listen to different podcasts and different thinkers and read different books. And Mm -hmm. maybe slowly, slowly over time, there's something... I I just really feel... I mean, we've talked about this before, but I'll give an example. This week, did you watch the Grammys? No, I I only watched Tracy Chapman. Okay, Uh, that's exactly what I wanted to talk about. So everybody, I'm going to say something very unpopular, but I'm just going to say it. So everybody was going crazy about that performance, which was Mm -hmm. great. It was beautiful. I love that song. And it was really nice moment with her and what's his name? Luke Combs or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, But I started to think about this and I'm like, we're so devoid of meaning in our country that that performance became this like holy moment for everyone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the way the media talked about it and the way everybody was sharing it on social media. And it's because they just don't have a lot of meaningful things happening in their lives. And Mm -hmm. so that song, which I'm, I'm thrilled that it happened and it was beautiful, but I really think people are so thirsty and hungry for actual real meaning in their everyday lives. And so they're attaching themselves to these, what could have been just a beautiful song, beautiful performance, but it's not the holiest moment that has happened in 25 years. And so, I don't yeah. know, I think young people are looking for more. <clears throat> What's Yeah, yeah, no doubt. What was interesting to me about that is, uh, basically, you, you had some people hailing it as this incredibly exceptional event for like a queer black woman and a, a white man to be like singing the same song yeah. or and for he didn't him attack to have, her or you know yeah yeah he didn't attack her like the kkk didn't show up <laughs> mm-hmm. um they didn't come to blows like but uh, and to me to make much of this i i feel like it's so regressive because when when i was mm. a kid and i learned that uh, Come Together wasn't a Michael Jackson song. It was a Beatles song. <laughs> and when I learned that, um, it will give you a sense of how my musical upbringing was uh, in terms of racially and culturally. I thought that was a Michael Jackson song and I thought um, Got to Get You Into My Life was an Earth, Wind, Earth, Wind and Fire song <laughs> until I was like an, an, an adult. <laughs> and then I went back and listened to the originals. I was like, okay, like I don't like these as much, but like 
Beatles are great too. Like, you know, it's all great. I don't think it's, uh, I don't think it's like, it it, it needs to, in other words, people are treating this like, uh, it's like Rabin and Arafat shaking hands or something. (laughs) When it's been like very normal for black American and white American artists to perform music together for since long before I was born. Right. So I guess there's this like, backslide in the perception of where we are such that mm. Chapman and Luke Combs is this big deal. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing about it was Tracy Chapman was happy to have her song covered. She got paid handsomely half yeah. a million for the cover. Luke Combs was happy to do the cover. I'm sure his fans were going back and checking her out. Yeah. Her fans were checking him out. Mm. It was just a totally positive sum experience. Everyone benefited except for the freaking Washington Post columnist or whoever <laughs> who had yeah. to make it about race and I how know. this white guy took this black woman song. Or like a, a, no one no one else was upset until this person had to make it about race. That's mm-hmm. so and true. that's what's so strange about it to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's I think so also true. sometimes, you know, there's this whole thing on when people talk about Twitter is like the story isn't the story itself, it's a reaction to the story. Mm. So Mm-hmm. That Washington Post story that you were mentioning, that kind of this this woman was saying how it's, you know, harmful or whatever language we use today for a white country singer to cover a song by a black queer woman. Um, sometimes I don't know, like, how much of the backlash is the thing or the reaction to the thing. Uh, right. But then again, I think the problem is, and this is something I want to ask you about, so, you know, you talk about kind of like neo-racism and I think that would qualify under, under you know, neo-racism, the, this kind of idea that uh, this woman had about the, the appropriation of the song. And it's not that so many people believe in it. It's that the rest of us don't want to say anything, mm-hmm. right? So if you're in a room full of 10 people of, of all different races and somebody would say something like that, like saying, you know, a white country singer shouldn't cover a song by a black queer woman, nobody would want to speak up. Like, it's just not mm-hmm. not worth it. So, like, how do we, you know, how do we get out of, of this situation where most people agree with you, probably, and the mm-hmm. stuff that you write in the book is so, like, you're reading like it and you're like, sense. well, of course, it's common yeah. sense. But nobody wants to stick their neck out. Yeah, I mean, this is, I guess they call this preference falsification Mm -hmm. in the literature. And uh, I know this guy, Cass Sunstein, writes quite a bit about this. And he even wrote about a a case, I think, in Saudi Arabia where the male guardianship laws were, uh, like, everyone claimed to support them, but actually very few people privately liked them. Mm -hmm. And in these situations... They're they're vulnerable to a kind of cascade where you know the first person comes out and and says the emperor ha- emperor has no clothes and then more and more people yeah. feel confident to do that uh, and then everyone realizes that no one actually believed the thing or very few people actually believe the thing so I you know part of why I'm writing this book it's you know and sometimes I get criticized because. Uh, much of what I'm saying isn't new or original, which is a strange critique because I, I'm often <laughs> not trying to be new or original. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to 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 say what I think is true and, and wise. And me- many of those things are older things. Um, there's very little in my 
overall philosophy that you couldn't get from reading Dr. King or Bayard Rustin. Right. Um, that is a strange critique now that you think of it. It, it is a strange critique, and it, in some way it implies that people... That there are some writers that, above all, want to say something new, whether or not it's mm. true. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little bit of a different conversation, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, it's I, a problem. It's the same people who don't want to hear anything from uh, dead white men. Right, right, that's right. Even if it's like two plus two equals four. Right. Um, <laughs> I, so part of why I write this book and part of why I gave my TED Talk is, you know, not because I think I'm breaking ground, but because I want to be, I want, I want to help that cascade along. I want to help, um, help it be the case that people can stand up with pride and in, in those rooms and say, actually, I don't agree with that. Mm. Um, or, you know, what's the problem? Um, right. Or, you know, I think colorblind society is the only, only really goal worth striving towards and so on and so forth. So mm-hmm. It's interesting in the Talmud, um, there's two, sorry, Al, <laughs> to bring in some Jewish content. But, For um, this Jewish podcast. <laughs> no, there were two rabbis, Hillel and Shammai, who were like, directly in competition with each other in like in terms of their opinions on how to perform Jewish law etc and they had very different attitudes and generally we we follow Hillel's opinions on how to perform the commandments but the Talmud includes all of Shammai's arguments for why he felt the way he did, right? Or why his students felt the way he did. They were like big schools of thought. And it says, one of the commentaries say that one of the reasons that we follow Hillel's opinions is because Hillel made sure that his students were able to argue Shammai's case. Even if they thought it was wrong and even if they didn't agree with his conclusions, they had to be able to articulate Shammai's case for Mm -hmm. why he felt the way he did. And I think about that a lot because we just do the opposite. I mean, we only teach our kids one way, right? Like we Mm -hmm. just have the one narrative that we're pushing. We never try to engage with the other side at all. I mean, Mm -hmm. very rarely at least. Uh, Maybe we should just go back to like what you're saying, old ideas, you know, from 2000 years ago. Uh, We might be better off. There was this, you guys probably saw this video circulating on Twitter last week of uh, apparently it was staged, uh, but it looked real. It was um, a student who just kind of casually said that J.K. Rowling was transphobic. Oh yeah, mm. and oh, then, he's a very good-looking teacher. I would yeah, go this to his very, class. This, this kind <laughs> of I'd, I'd agree with him. Hunk, hunk of a teacher. <laughs> yes, he was. Um, an HR case waiting to happen. <laughs> uh, basically, walks. Basically, just Socratic methods. The student who. Uh, made the accusation, and four minutes later, the student is like, I, I feel like an idiot. Yeah, like, yeah. I-, I actually agree with what J.K. <laughs> Rowling is saying. I don't know why I said that. Um, might have oh been staged, God. but <laughs> it, regardless, the fact that it, it was shared so widely, um, it, again, it, it, it exposes how rare it is to see that, um, that, yeah. that kind of teaching and that kind of thinking mm-hmm. where you're encouraged to steal man the yeah. other side, as as it's often called, in in Colombia, I was part of a student group, short lived, called Colloquia, where we would p- play a game called Red Team Blue Team. So we would take, say, gun control or a- any topic, and split the group in two, and you had to argue randomly one side or the other. Mm. I, love I that. always enjoyed that. Yeah, that's yeah. it's so important. I think that the the problem with like 
the JK Rowling and, and, and to a certain extent, you know, what's going on with Israel and Gaza is like, I think people pick up snippets of information and they make them feel a certain way, but they don't know. And, and it happens to me too. Like there are certain words or things that you will tell me that maybe I don't know exactly too deeply about, but for some people that might be JK Rowling and they'll be like, oh, JK Rowling bad. Like JK yeah. Rowling, something bad with, with trans people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they don't take the time to think about it um, for whatever reason, but the, the opinions are already formed. Like the, the allegiance is is already there. Mm-hmm. And that troubles me is like, we don't do that kind of deep thinking. Like we don't respect our opinions enough to do the the deep thinking when we, when we start a conversation with somebody about it. Like I'm always shocked about how people, you know, not to say that you can't have an intelligent conversation about Israel with opposition to Israel, but how people who are like, a 22-year-old student in Queens College it like tries to pick a fight with me about Israel. Like, mm-hmm. girl, like, yeah. really? Yeah. I, I mean, just, you don't have to agree with me, but like, just understand that the knowledge should go deeper if you're going mm-hmm. to form an opinion. Yeah. And I mean, we don't want to do that. Also, not having an opinion on something should be much more acceptable. Yes. <laughs> just true. saying, I actually don't know much about that, so I'm not going to What's something you don't have an opinion about? Uh, most things. Okay, really? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Fracking. I still don't know what fracking yeah. is. I don't want to no know. Opinion on fracking. I don't want to learn. Yeah. I don't know. I I think I have an opinion on everything. Yeah. No, I'm sure there's something. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. What do you think uh, about? Uh, this is totally off topic, but what do you think about Tucker going to Russia to interview <laughs> Putin? I don't have an opinion about that. Yeah, I mean, I'll have to see the interview. I, he doesn't have a good recent track record. Of, that's true of press of, of being a good journalist let's yeah. put it that way yeah yeah so yeah. my expectation is that his interview will not be challenging enough mm. to Putin's narrative um and will basically be bootlicking yeah but mm. if he were to give an interview to Putin where he while letting Putin speak if he were to give the kind of interview Piers Morgan would give to Putin <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Putin would shoot I'd him. I'd be fine with it. Yeah, but he'd be dead. So. <laughs> like, I don't know. I remember when John Miller, uh, who I used to work with, actually interviewed uh, Bin Laden, yeah. you know, in the 90s. So that, that was cool. Mm-hmm. It was like, you know. It, yeah, but there's something uncool about this. I don't know. It's Well, because like, it's Tucker Carlson. Yeah, maybe. It's weird. Yeah, he's, <laughs> he's a weird guy. Well, Tucker, okay. he, just, he just gave an interview to Brett Weinstein. Yeah. Where, and I've, I've only, I've seen like, 10 minutes of clips from it. So it could be out of context, but Brett is floating all these crazy theories about Shocking. how, how, you know, the Chinese <laughs> um, are sort of able to rebalance the gender ratio of their population. Oh gosh. Somehow intuitively, like if there's too many young males in the population, then w- women will start giving birth to, <laughs> females and if they're not doing that when they're preparing for war as a society they somehow have some way of (laughs) biologically getting a higher ratio of males and and i I was like this sounds like just really weird boilerplate (laughs) nonsense like not even possible and tucker's just sitting there like fascinating (laughs) it's like treating it like genius what happened yeah. to Brett? I used, I loved him and his wife before COVID. 
I love them. I like... Yeah, they were great. When they would come on the podcasts, I would drink it up. I thought they were brilliant. I don't know what happened. Except I have a problem with the way he sounds on on microphone. Oh, really? Because he does a lot of like... He has like a dry mouth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And I can't listen to that. (laughs) But... His brother is weird too. On that note, not on not on dry mouth, but on on the Brett Weinstein <laughs> note. So, I actually have a question I want to ask you, Coleman, because I spoke to somebody um, close to you um, recently. Not to not to blow that person up. This is so creepy. Yeah, yeah I know. It sounds like I'm gonna like, and we have a surprise for you. <laughs> you have a brother. No, <laughs> um, no but that person uh, uh, remarked that they're very they're very proud and, and very kind of you know um, really happy that you you could have since you're showing kind of more I don't know views that are more uh, associated with conservatives uh, that you could have easily become a crazy conservative reactionary, mm-hmm. right? Like you could have been embraced by the right wing and then just kind of sunk into that, into that world of just being, um, can I guess who this came from? Uh, sure. I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to blow that person up, but yes. Um, would it be my father? It would. It uh, would. Okay. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> who I love. Um, and I don't know if you, do you know that he has like a date with me and like three girlfriends to come see you in like yeah, two weeks. Yeah, yeah, He's excited. We're, we're like on a group text. It's very exciting. Uh, but, but you know, I, th- I thought about, I was like, well, yeah, that's actually a really good point because, you know, you were obviously very, very successful and you got interviewed by a lot of people um, on the right and it would be very easy for anybody to be like, okay, well, I'm a right winger now and I'm just going to go on Newsmax and like, you know, mm-hmm. drink liberal tears. Yes. Uh, how did you stay? How did you stay kind of grounded in your beliefs? I, I strongly think those that is a matter of personality, mm-hmm. and it makes sense. My dad would say that because that would be his fear for me. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's not tantamount to saying that that was ever likely to happen, mm-hmm. because I'm I've uh, I'm not really a joiner by personality. I actually. The one time I joined a club was that Colloquia Club <laughs> because you got to not, you didn't have to commit yourself to any position. It was all, all about the argument itself. Mm-hmm. I haven't joined any other clubs in my life. I dislike joining. I dislike the psychology of belonging to a team and then having to be loyal to that team. Mm. Um, I'll, I'll be loyal to my friends and family, but that's really I'll be loyal to my country in 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 in, in most cases right. but that's that's it and I think there's a different kind of person that gets into this world of public intellectual and speaking and at the first sign of harsh criticism which is par for the course and you sign up for in this profession retreats to anyone that will have them mm-hmm. and uh, I won't name names, but I'm sure you can all think of 10 people that mm-hmm. oh, yeah. really cocoon themselves among people that don't criticize them because they got lots of criticism from one side. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, that that's a matter of, I think, fragile, uh, f- fragile constitution. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's so true. Yeah, more opportunist than or opportunist. Probably, you, but it's tempting. It's tempting, you know, <laughs> especially if you're being somebody like Brett Weinstein, who's been really 
hurt by his his team, so to speak, mm-hmm. um, on the left. Um, you know, it is it is very tempting on a personal level, and it's hard to kind of do that uh, do that inside work to not to like stay true to your beliefs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you talk about your mom a little bit in the book. Do you want to? Can you tell us a little bit about her? Do you are you comfortable talking about sure, her? Sure. Yeah. I mean, my 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 mother was a magnificent woman. She uh, she was from the South Bronx. She had a, a very rough childhood. Uh, South Bronx in the sixties and seventies was uh, yeah. it, it was kind of like how people talk about the South Side of Chicago today mm-hmm. as shorthand for you know, the worst place in the country to grow up yeah. vis-a-vis yeah. urban violence. That's how people talked about the South Bronx then. And I mean, it's not that great now either. <laughs> yeah. Um, and she made it out of that environment into upper middle class professions. She went to Stuyvesant High mm. School. Um, and uh, she was quite a remarkable woman. She was kind of half a Marxist, if not a full Marxist. And <laughs> so I, when, when I was very young, she would read what she was working on to me, her PhD dissertation. She would read Marx and Durkheim and uh, kind of try to raise me kind of as like a, as a Marxist. I had no idea what any of it meant. <laughs> so funny. And I remember as a kid, her saying Durkheim's name and me thinking she was saying dirt kind. <laughs> Because obviously, why right. would I? <laughs> yeah, how would you know? Why would I not? That's so funny. Um, it sounds like something Kyle would call him. Dirt hide. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but yeah, she uh, she was great. She passed away when I was uh, 19 or 18, rather. Wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, almost 10 years ago. And it was quite a shock to me and sent me into a, a period of depression and panic attacks and and really pretty difficult year of my life but i think it also forced me to get a little more serious about what i wanted out of life mm-hmm. younger than many people would mm-hmm. and so i i'm a strong believer that healthy people find silver linings in in every um uh, situation no matter how 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 terrible and the silver lining for that was I think I got, it was kind of forced to reflect and get my shit together as a person a l- much younger yeah. than I otherwise might have. You know, you, you, you meet people that haven't had uh, a psychological shock, you know, for many decades, for, for their whole lives yeah. until they experience it first at age 40. That's not necessarily such a good thing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they're not prepared you, to handle um, it. Do you take her with you in her in your head, like for advice and things like that? Oh, sure, sure, mm-hmm. absolutely, yeah. And um, yeah, in the context of this book, it was I, I talk about her a little bit because she was uh, she was Puerto Rican. Uh, both of her parents were from the island, mm. and she was a bit more light skinned than me. She her father was. A uh, black Puerto Rican. Her mother was a white Puerto Rican. They were, and she came out just kind of golden brown. Mm. And after she passed away, I would I would often talk about her to my friends who had known her. And one day, one of my friends says, refer to her as a black woman, mm. which I thought was really interesting because I had never ever 
thought of her as a black woman. She had never referred to herself that way. She Mm -hmm. would always say she was Puerto Rican. She was from the South Bronx. Um, Spanish was her first language. Like she was, uh, but, but Americans experienced her as a light skinned black woman. Mm. And I thought that was interesting. And then I was very surprised uh, to once be talking to my father and he referred to her as a black woman. And I was like, hold on, am I, is this, am I being (laughs) punked right now? Is, is because, you know, uh, my entire life, my mother has described herself as Puerto Rican and we've all thought of her as Puerto Rican and her whole family speaks Spanish and (laughs) like cooks pastelon and pasteles and like, like how is, that's not, I think what we mean by black, but it, it sent me thinking and going down the rabbit hole in the book of really what we mean by race, uh, to what degree it's a social construct, to what degree these categories change over time and are determined arbitrarily. So that's kind of how I opened that conversation in the mm. book. Yeah, mm. I loved it. Yeah, and I you think play, when I've seen you play a few times at the um, the olive tree, olive tree, yeah, at mm-hmm. the olive tree, and you do. Um, a Spanish song? Yeah, I sing in Spanish, I love, yeah. I know, it's so good. Is, are, do you, you speak Spanish fluently, right? I wouldn't say fluently. I I, I can get around in a Spanish uh, country. But. And that, you sound fluent when you sing that song. <laughs> or the you. few songs that you do. <laughs> but if anybody hasn't gone, you should definitely go. Do you still do it every Monday night? Yeah, or? every Monday. It's so good. Yeah, it's yep. a lot of fun. It's the best thing to do in New York, And the food honestly. there is really good, too. Chayla, I'm sorry. I know it's not kosher, so you can't have it. But Whatever, it's we like, should have a meeting with Noam. I think it's yeah. time for them to go kosher. <laughs> Get a hechsher, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> like they did in Israel. In Israel, they turn those around for the war, the kosher things really quickly. They can do it for for the seller. Yeah. Do you enjoy oh. playing? Is that like, I mean, I know you enjoy it. That's a dumb question. But like, mm-hmm. are, is that something that you look forward to every week? And Oh, yeah, definitely. I, I love, you know, music was really my first love. Uh, out of high school, my plan and reality was being a professional jazz musician. I was gigging in the city since I was 15. Um, out of high school, I went to Juilliard for many months and that was going <laughs> wow. to be my life path until my mother died and I re- reconsidered everything. Really? Um, but I always, I've always kept doing music. So, but yeah, I mean, that was my plan A and everything I've done since then was, you know, viewed from that point of view, I would have seen as a detour. It's your, uh, your uh, fallback, the whole book thing. Right. Yeah. In case the music doesn't work out. <laughs> right. Who's your, does, dream, uh, your dream duet or your dream person to be on stage with? Oh, I don't know. Uh, most of them are dead. <laughs> That's fine. So many people. Uh, like Michael Jackson, Hector oh, Laveau, Al Green, Curtis Mayfield. Have you seen the MJ musical? I have not, actually. It is so good. Yeah, but Curtis But unfortunately, really the kid who played him uh, I mean, he's not doing it anymore, but when mm. I saw him, he was like, I'd never said this before about anything, but I feel like he was touched by God, this mm. child. I mean, mm. child, he's like 21. Was he touched yeah. by Michael Jackson? <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. I was just, but, uh, <laughs> just wondering. But uh, yeah, I mean, the MJ, like Michael Jackson's music is really... I don't know. I think a, a, anybody who grew up around, even though we're kind of different generations and influenced all our lives. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think like being a jazz musician intersects with kind of your interest in race in general? Because it is, I mean, I don't know if, if, if you feel that way, but it kind of is an intersection, right? I guess the only, the only way in which I think they're related is that 
having spent so much of my younger life, like from the ages of, let's say, 13 to 20, the, the pie chart of how much time I spent in the jazz world around jazz musicians was extremely high. And in that world, race really doesn't matter because mm-hmm. we're all obsessed with the same thing. We're, yeah. we're, we all, it's fairly meritocratic. There's some subjectivity, but it's mm-hmm. like you recognize greatness when you see it. Right. When you hear it, rather. Mm-hmm. And people want to play with you insofar as you're great and passionate about the music and all of the other things that would divide you really do melt away right in your shared right. passion and a lot of I, I'm not sure everyone has lived in spaces like that yeah, um, yeah. that advertise the possibility of transcending race I think yeah most yeah. people are very I think cautious about race now when they enter and especially if you grew up in a you know a primarily white or primarily kind of upper class area. I don't know. I I feel like when I came to the U.S., I was a lot more free with like, you know, I wasn't afraid to say things that maybe were not politically correct, but also I feel like I had, I was more comfortable with every type of, you know, person that I met Mm -hmm. in America. And now, you know, I feel like you just approached all these interactions like very cautiously. Right. Um, and yeah, I mean, music is a, is a great tool to just completely transcend that. Plus, you can't talk when you have a trombone in your mouth. Exactly. <laughs> so you're not going to have a Hopefully, Hopefully, it's not in your mouth. That's, well, <laughs> <laughs> that's how much we know about these instruments. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Wait, we, have, we should tell Coleman about his poor names that we've... Oh, yeah. We, we, we have a... Um, I'm going to make you so uncomfortable my, right my now. My what names? Your, your, your porn names. So... We have we're in a group chat with people who are really big fans of yours, and okay. they and that's everybody not loves the group you. chat by the no. way. It's not like the Coleman Hughes <laughs> it's fan not. club. Just not to sound creepy. Yeah. Next thing we know, we have a restraining order against us. So, <laughs> um, so we were just mentioning that you were coming on, and I don't know how it came. Or somebody said they got your book and by accident wrote a great n- mistake, and they wrote, "I just got Coleman huge." Huge's oh, book. Great. And so someone said that sounds like a great, a great porn name for him. And Look, then when, Yael, I, when I get canceled and I need uh, supplementary income, <laughs> I, it, might, it might happen. Well, we have a better one. I think yeah, we yeah, even got a better, a better one. one. Yael had a better one. Well, no, I don't think it was mine, but somebody came up with Pullman Huge. Oh. <laughs> and I, I don't know. I just want to throw that out there in case the, the music doesn't work out and the whole race thing doesn't work out. Yeah. We're here for you. We well, have a lot of ideas. Thank you very much. I, I think you could pull in. Uh, I'll you know, start the I, OnlyFans right now. Yeah, exactly. Might as well. Exactly. I'm sure the NPR podcast that you're doing and the like Manhattan <laughs> Institute podcast that you're doing aren't going to be helping you like, <laughs> like we are. Exactly. We have your back more than they do. Let's yeah. be honest. I was actually gonna gonna offer Coleman like a choose your own adventure. Do you want to talk <laughs> about that? But we already did. Or do you want to talk about your whole TED talk? Oh, I could. Yeah. And we should talk to about Israel guys. too. After. Oh yeah, sorry about Israel because too. you were in Israel since we had you on last, and we want to hear what you hated about Israel and how genocidal they are. Yeah. Right. So well, yeah, let's were... do the TED Talk first, and then we'll do Israel. <laughs> yeah. So TED Talk. Um, if people want to get the the detailed version, they could look at my piece in the Free Press. But mm-hmm. well, short version really of what? Good. Yeah, very short version of what happened is I gave a pretty 
mild TED talk suggesting that we should stop uh, caring so much about race, stop using race in public policy, instead use class and socioeconomics where we want to correct for disadvantage, and you know, live by Martin Luther King's philosophy. And this was seen by some TED employees as triggering, as making them quote-unquote unsafe and attacking their existence mm-hmm. and all of the various buzzwords that have come out of kind of safetyism. Hmm. And um, essentially, rather than release my TED Talk normally, they had so much backlash that they wanted me to do a debate and attach it to the end of my TED Talk so that people could consume it with a chaser. Which is wild because you go on TED and it's like, this is why butterflies are actually, you know, trans. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's, it's not like they shy away from Yeah, and it's just like pure things. like misinformation or something. But yeah. it's, like the, <laughs> it's the good kind of misinformation. Um, right, right. In other words, yeah, so they, they held my talk, though it had no factual errors, um, to a totally different standard. And I, I went back and forth and back and forth, eventually agreed to do a debate with Jamel Bowie as a separate video and and so that was our deal I held up my end and their end was to promote release my talk normally but they didn't do that instead they they released it only on their website not on YouTube and did nothing at all to promote it where they have a they have a well-oiled machine of just how they promote every TED mm, talk right they, yeah. they they do a bunch of different stuff and they did none of that stuff uh, with mine, so that it had you know every other TED talk in its vicinity, uh, no matter the topic, had between like four hundred thousand and eight hundred thousand views at that time, and mine had seventy thousand, hmm. which was just like wow. I think the key word here is TED employees. I think it's a yeah, it's a certain sect of of people, but also I, I know it drives me crazy how people can be like it's just so cowardly. Like, I understand that it might upset some people, but uh, I don't know. Would you ever go back and do another one? Yeah. I I don't, I'm not on bad terms with Chris. Oh, good. Um, And I think he seemed honest in the way he, I I felt just as an outsider, his response seemed honest, but the whole situation was was It was a mixed bag. I mean, he, he never has fully acknowledged the degree to which they throttled and sandbagged my talk. Um, but in any event, yeah, it, it was a heck, situation of a heckler's veto. Yeah. And it unleashed a lot of people that had been mad at Ted for some time over how woke it's gone. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I think he got a lot of backlash. And perhaps in response to that, next year he's invited Barry Weiss and Bill mm-hmm. Ackman. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and I talks. saw some people have resigned over that because some people have resigned. Yeah, it's so, genocide. Can you them. imagine resigning over talking to those two people? I mean, it's it's I mean, insane. People treat Barry Weiss like she's—I don't know—Genghis Khan. Yeah, <laughs> like it's it's crazy. It's insane. Well, uh, so hopefully, we, though, it helps clear out Ted of some of the problem. People. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. I look at my, you know, every day I refresh my podcast feed and like my Spotify new episodes. And I always read the title of the episode first before I see who, what the show is. And I can always tell when it's a TED talk. Why? Because it's just like a certain type of interest. Like 
in the intersection between being very kind of looking into one's own issues and something in political. So it'd be like how imposter syndrome is reflected in, you know, the immigration story (laughs) or, you know, why are, why we are insecure about, you know, global warming. Like it's always those two, I feel like those two intersections. Um, That said, if uh, Ted wants Kyla and I to give a talk, We'll do it. But none of that TEDx nonsense. We don't... We can never do a TED Talk. Are you no. kidding? Everyone's we, so... Of course we can. No, we're, everyone's so poised and they know it by heart. We would be like, what? What? Yeah. I, fuck, what? I can read we this. To Is this all? Is the microphone working? <laughs> <laughs> we should start the opposite of TED Talks where everyone's just like shit shows on stage, like <laughs> just blabbering about nonsense. Um, um, wait, Thomas, so, we have you for a few more minutes, so... Uh, let's, I want to hear about Israel. Israel. Like, did yeah. you like it? How was how was your trip? Oh yeah, I loved it. I mean, uh, we uh, I, I I yes, one of the favorite trips I've I've ever been on. Mm. So I guess the the Hasbro is working. Yeah, the money um, that the check uh, <laughs> that we're paying you is on its way. No, it was great. I mean, it, it was ju- to just visit a place is always good because then you retain so much more about uh, the place. In, in the aftermath and um, and I have, a, I have a funny habit of visiting places just before they break out into war. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I went, I went to Kiev like a year before the war broke oh out. Oh my God. I went That's to so Israel funny. a war before. Uh, yeah, so, Tell yeah. us where your next vacation is so we yeah, know exactly. uh, what to expect. Maui. No, it was fantastic. I mean, um, it, it, it gave a lot of context for recent events. I did a deep dive on the history. I had Benny Morris on my podcast. Yeah, that was great. It was great. And, um, and so, yeah. Are you surprised by the, the reaction here? Because I feel like there are two types of people, people who were shocked by how Amer- some Americans reacted or didn't react to October 7th. And the people who said like, oh, of course that's how people would react. Mm-hmm. I wasn't super shocked by it. Because when I was at Columbia, I I observed and knew lots of people in, in BDS, and mm. um, in other words, Columbia was as crazy about the Israel Palestine issue then yeah. in 2017, 18 as it is now. But there was For just sure. no major war at that time. So uh, you know, I, I remember you know every year there would be the apartheid. Protest and mm-hmm. the, oh, yeah. and the the Jewish group um, would have a much smaller demonstration on opposite sides of campus, and I had a friend in the Jewish group that I was just chatting with outside the library, and someone from the Palestinian group came up, opened their laptop, and had the laptop read the word shame like a thousand times in a row. Mm. <laughs> That's effective. Yeah. <laughs> And by the end of the thousand times, I was like, she has a point. Like, Israel is really... <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. That's a shame all of a sudden. So, so I, I wasn't surprised by the campus reaction at all. Um, Do you yeah. think it's a continuation of this kind of neo-racism or... Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think the, the vast majority of kids that go to uh, an elite college 
and get recruited by BDS or the pro-Palestinian groups. They don't know the first thing about Israel or Palestine. They Most of them have no real personal connection to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, would, I would say Muslim kids are an exception right. mm-hmm. to this. But for the rest of the kids, which is a huge amount, they're told that this is Jim Crow 2.0. Yeah. This is America's racial history all over again. This is white policemen in the South hosing down peaceful civil rights protesters. Mm-hmm. Copy-paste that to this situation and you've understood the essence of the Israel-Palestine conflict. Yeah. When you tell that to an American, uh, you, you tell that to something that's deep and, and central to our historical understanding of our country, which is slavery, Jim Crow, and the, the elimination of those Mm-hmm. evils. Once you tap into that it's and cr- persuade people that that's what Israel-Palestine is, that the level that they care about the issue just falls into place. Hmm. And that's yeah. what it is for most white Americans, most black Americans. That's what they see. That's yeah. also, I think, what many Europeans who would have no other reason to care about the situation see. They see their own colonial past. Mm-hmm. And so this is why I have a slight disagreement with many people that are broadly that I broadly agree with, which is it's not all about anti-Semitism, actually. Mm-hmm. It's partly yeah. about anti-Semitism, but it's partly about this oversimplified equation of Israel and Palestine to Europe's relationship with Africa mm-hmm. and white mm-hmm. America's relationship with black Americans. Yeah, I, I think, think it's a bigger right. problem than the Jews. Yeah. You know, yeah. I think it's a problem think right. of... Ignorance mixed with arrogance. Right. Um, when do you I get a lot of uh, shit for having speaking to Benny Morris and yeah, less for speaking to Benny Morris than for my general defense of Israel as the good guy in this situation vis-a-vis right. Hamas. Um, and, and so I, I wrote a, I wrote a whole piece for the Free Press talking about why Israel Palestine is not analogous to. American race relations at all. I mean, th- mm-hmm. there's a there's a million ways in which it's not, but arguably the most important mm-hmm. is that not even Malcolm X, who is the most important radical black leader of the black liberation movement, if you, you could call it that, um, not even Malcolm X wanted to take over the country from the Atlantic to the Pacific. <laughs> right, right. At his most radical, he wanted a black ethnostate somewhere in the South or mm-hmm. somewhere uh, entirely different. Yeah. yeah. And that was, that was the most radical, very popular, yeah. important black leader, right? Uh, and, and even he wasn't as influential as MLK, who wanted nothing more than equality and, and tr- you know, interracial brotherhood. Mm-hmm. So to equate the goals of the Black American Civil Rights Movement, for instance, or even of the Black Power Movement and the Radicals, to the goals of the Palestinian National Movement, which its its main goal has been fairly consistently a state from the river to the sea in which uh, Jews would have no political rights and would uh, almost certainly have to flee. Mm-hmm. These are not two movements that want anything like the same thing and they thus can't be treated as if they're equivalent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If if that's what 
Israeli Jews had been dealing with, if, if they had been dealing with a, a group that really wanted to live peacefully side by side, the conflict would have been over before it began. Before it right. started, yeah. Right. And that's what people don't understand. Yeah. I, I'm very persuaded by Sam Harris's argument about the broader context of the conflict and sort of like the ideology behind a lot of the different conflicts going on in the world. And I think it's kind of embarrassing. I, I feel like secondhand embarrassment for the people who are out there shilling for Hamas mm-hmm. and for the Houthis. Like I I feel like one day they're gonna wake up and be like, holy shit, <laughs> like yeah. what was I saying and what was I doing? I mean, these are these are horrible genocidal organizations. I mean, these are not normal people. Like if you care I, I have a ton of sympathy for people who care about the Palestinians. And I, I I care about the Palestinians in a way that, like, I don't want Israelis to have to kill them. I think it's really bad, right? I, I It really bothers me that Israel's in a position to have to be fighting civilians, right? Like, or, you know, whatever's going on in Gaza. But mm-hmm. it's the 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 embarrassment I have for the people is they don't know what they are talking about. Mm-hmm. They are literally defending horrendous ideologies. And I, yeah. I, we have people in Congress like that. We have people on campus like that. We have journalists. I mean, it's, it, we have Jews. We have fellow oh, Jews, Jews the who are out there saying these insane things. And like... But that's the privilege of like, know. there's a certain privilege of ne- never having to put your ideas to the test yeah. and never having to consider... Like the whole ceasefire thing is a great idea in theory, right? But you're it, not the ones who are going to have to pay the price if of course. it, gets broken it doesn't work. Yeah. I can't remember. I'm, I'm struggling to remember who put it this way. So this is, I'm plagiarizing somebody right now. <laughs> but they were saying that the American approach to, to the Middle East has too often been just substituting people there for yeah. us. Right. Mm-hmm. right, just changing out, saying, "Okay, let's let's imagine it's Americans and black uh, uh, Americans, yeah. uh, Americans on each side." Uh, how would we solve the situation in that case? Right. Mm-hmm. Like, right. Okay. Well, you've precisely missed the point yeah. because you're you're not dealing with uh, groups of people that want the same things, that have exactly. the same values, and have the same end goals. And Hamas is extremely clear about who it is and what it wants. It spells it out ad nauseum. Right. And we don't want to listen because the imaginative leap required is too much for people. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, yeah. It's yeah. hard to wrap your head around the idea that people value things more than life. Right. You know, and it's a hard, hard truth to, to yeah. sit with. Yeah, it's Anyone hard to Right. But anyone who tells me that they care about the Palestinians and then they don't immediately say, that's why I'm against Hamas, I, mm-hmm. I have no patience for them. Like, mm-hmm. I right. just, they are dishonest. They are not, this is not an honest person who actually cares about Palestinian lives. Because if you do, you want Hamas out of there. So I don't know. For me, it's like very black and white. Sorry. I, th- I um, think that's right. I mean, I think the the constant point of contention this whole war has been the civilian death toll. And in a Mm -hmm. way, I actually agree that the civilian death toll is totally unacceptable. But the problem is that it's Hamas's fault that Mm -hmm. the civilian death toll is what it is. Like, I think uh, our our friend Noam, I think, had a very good thought experiment where, like, if if for some reason every Palestinian civilian 
were taken, you know, to to an island off the coast or to a corner of Gaza that had no strategic significance. Mm-hmm. And the IDF could just kill Hamas fighters only. Like who who would immediately lose in this situation? Hamas. Right. right. So Hamas's deep incentive is to remain as entwined with the civilians as possible. This is their mm-hmm. only weapon mm-hmm. in the war. They have That's no right. other advantages aside from the fact that they're deeply embedded in their own civilian population. Remove right. that variable and Hamas instantly loses. Yeah, so from their perspective, feature. it's a yeah. feature. Yeah, they, they, they have a deep and fundamental incentive to ratchet up the civilian death toll on their own side. This yeah. is not like any war that has been fought in history. Right. And Hamas has ensured that, right? Like in, in a normal war, you put the civilians in the bomb shelter and the soldiers mm-hmm. bravely face the fire. This right. is precisely mm-hmm. the opposite. The, the soldiers built an underground city and bomb shelter for themselves and keep the civilians above ground. It's yeah. insane. Right? But I mean, the battle is absolutely nuts. The battle for them is also in the campuses and in in Israeli society, in a sense. You know, the whole hostage thing is like that was it, I don't think they really want anything in return for the hostages. I think the point of the hostages was to make us feel the way we feel right now well, in Israel. Well, mm-hmm. the other advantage that Hamas has, aside from hiding behind their civilians, is that the people they're fighting actually care about civilians. I mean, right. if they were fighting Assad, he wouldn't care. It wouldn't be an advantage to them because mm-hmm. he would just, you know, carpet bomb if the whole place and not Assad, care. Nobody if, would know what the word Hamas means. Right, exactly. The only advantage, one of the biggest advantages they have is that they're fighting Israel. Yeah. And it's just, I, I can't, that's where I like really get stuck because I'm proud of that. Like, I feel extremely proud to be part of the people who care about life more than, you know, anything. But it also is frustrating because I want to just wipe them out. And like, I don't know how to (laughs) reconcile those two feelings inside of me, right? And so, I don't know. I'm glad I'm not in charge. That's all I could say. I'm glad (laughs) I'm not the prime minister or in the war cabinet or... uh, I don't know. It's... No easy answers for I know. sure. Absolutely. Anyway. Um, okay. All right, Coleman, we'll we let you go. Is there anything else go. we didn't ask you? Anything? Uh... Um, I don't think so, but I would direct all of your listeners to buy my book, The End yes. of Race Politics, Arguments we'll for a Colorblind America. There's yes. a bunch of good stuff buy in there. It, buy it twice. Yeah. Don't check it out from the library like some kind of communist. And for our, no, and for our audience, since Purchase. it's a Jewish audience, guys, pay the money. Just buy yeah, it, okay? Don't money. borrow don't, it from your friend, okay? Don't borrow just it from a friend. Don't use your book. Amazon points. No. Although that probably still just counts. buy it. And buy, buy the, you know, the expensive one, not the Kindle. It's a really good book, actually. Yeah. I really, no, on Honesty, Coleman, I really enjoyed it. it was, it's easy to read. It's full of good information. Really well done. Awesome. So, buy it for so the much. young people in your life. Yes. Yes, yes exactly. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming Thank on. Thank you, really. Coleman. Thanks for having me, guys. 